The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Do you wish for a more fulfilling, erotic, and sexual life? The journey begins here. This is The Sexual Voice with your host, Jessica Ford. As a relationship psychotherapist working with individuals and couples for decades, Jessica knows how to create and support meaningful relationships. Along with her guests, Jessica expands the lens of sex therapy, connecting you with a more satisfying and healthier sexual self. Now, here is Jessica Ford. Welcome to the Sexual Voice finale of this 13-week pilot series. So fortunate to have two amazing and gifted guests on this episode, a sex educator and a sex therapist, to discuss when a man's sexual desire changes, how to understand it, and learn what to do. This episode, like all the episodes, has lots of valuable content. The format of doing a live show is exciting and challenging. From my perspective, the best thing about Voice America format is all the episodes are recorded and can be listened to on demand, allowing all of the listeners the opportunity to go back and listen again and again, to learn, to seek out more information from all of the extraordinary guests that I've been so fortunate to have on The Sexual Voice. Our topic today, where is he, he's not into me or in me anymore, is when a man's sexual desire changes. The issue around desire, low or no desire, is one I hear most frequently from couples. More often than not, it's about the woman, but more and more it's about the man. There is nothing more emotionally distressful for both individuals than this loss of desire. One feels rejected and abandoned, and the other feels guilty and broken. For men, it is even more so. In sex therapy, the first session is an initial assessment to determine what's going on from a biological, psychological, or even social perspective. Basically, there are underlying causes. What are those underlying causes? Possibly medical, mental health concerns, or lack of social support issues. When the man has lost interest in sex, I frequently get asked by the partner, is it possible he could be gay? It is interesting. When a woman has lost interest in sex, I don't believe I've ever heard the partner ask, is she a lesbian? The stereotypes of who men are as these sexual animals of the wilderness and women as the demure submissive is simply not accurate. And hopefully today's episode will kind of continue and to help debunk these inaccuracies. On the show with me right now is Emily Nagowski. She is the New York Times best-selling author of Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. 
She has a PhD in health behavior with a doctoral concentration in human sexuality from Indiana University and a master's degree also from Indiana University in counseling with a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute of of Sexual Health Clinic. Emily's mission in life is to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their body. For more information about Emily, please look her up at her website, www.emilynagowski, and that's E-M-I-L-Y-N-A-G-O-S-K-I.com. So welcome, 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 Emily, and so so appreciative of you taking the time from your travels about uh, with your book promotion, certainly, but more importantly, with all the lectures and the teaching that you're doing. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad. I'm going to jump in and quickly ask you, can you set the desire topic stage by explaining the accelerator and the break? Sure, absolutely. So the mechanism in our brains that governs sexual response is the same for everybody, no matter what set of genitals you have. Um, and it's called the dual control mechanism, as you said. And if it's called the dual control mechanism, there have to be how many parts? Two parts. So as you say, the first one is the sexual accelerator or the, the gas pedal. Uh, and it's the one we're all pretty familiar with. It notices the sexually relevant information in the environment, which is everything that you see and hear, smell, touch, taste, or crucially imagine that your brain codes as a sexually relevant cue. And it sends the turn on signal, right? So it hits the accelerator. Mm-hmm. At the same time that that's functioning, and it's happening all the time at a low level, and in parallel, we also have a sexual break, which is noticing all the very good reasons not to be turned on right now. Everything you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat, and it sends the turn off signal. So desire is a product not just of turning on the ons, but also of turning off all the offs. And it turns out that when people are struggling with arousal or desire or orgasm, sometimes it's because there's not enough stimulation to the gas pedal, but much more often it's because there's too much stimulation to the brake. So you had written, and I'm going to kind of quote from your book, uh, I think in the research, 75% of men and about 15% of women have spontaneous desire. And 5% of men and 30% of women have responsive desire, which is, as you said, leaves about 50% of women and one in five men with what you call context-dependent. And for today's show, I'd love to explore more with the women, but today is about men and looking at this probably the one in five, although you may correct me if that is incorrect. But please explain this kind of concept of spontaneous and responsive desire and your phrase context dependent. And I'm going to ask you also to weave in uh, your very creative use of the monitor 
and <laughs> that you mentioned and how this fits into all of this. And, and, and I'm, you, you have a generous amount of time uh, for this show, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it was fascinating reading your work and it was done so creatively um, and it's really inspiring. Uh, just, you know, as I think you, you kind of, I used this word before, debunking a lot of the myths and uh, but yeah. I want to hear more. So so please get started with this spontaneous, responsive <laughs> desire and all of that. Right. Okay. So basically, chapter seven of the book, the whole thing. <laughs> yes, what I um, said. <laughs> but like the highlights. Yeah, exactly. The most important thing is so one those numbers. There since Come As You Are was published, it was actually before the book was came out came out but when it was they wouldn't let me change it anymore they're like it's at the printer you can't change it two more studies came out about uh the frequency of spontaneous and responsive desire and those numbers are a lot grayer now i think there's a lot more variability so that almost everyone falls into this category of context sensitive desire so let me talk about what these words actually mean um and then we'll uh go for the rest of it so Response, so spontaneous desire is the one we're used to thinking about where you're just sort of like walking down the street or having lunch and all of a sudden you just sort of have like the inner tingle and your body's like, hey, I would like, I would like the sexy times. Where can I get me those sexy times? Uh, and so you go home to your partner and you're like, hello, partner, I would like to, would you like to have the sexy times? That's spontaneous desire. It just emerges out of the blue. It feels like it comes from nowhere. Um, and then, and that's, that's one normal, healthy way to experience sexual desire, uh, but there's another one that in the research is called responsive desire because where spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation of pleasure, responsive desire emerges in response to pleasure. So these are folks who you're, you know, not doing anything particular. You're in a pretty good place mentally and emotionally and your certain special someone is cuddling up next to you on the couch and they start to like touch your arm and it feels nice and they say sweet, adorable things and that feels really good. And gradually the pleasure sort of accumulates and then your brain goes, hey, you know what? How about, how about the sexy times? How about that? And that is also a normal, healthy experience of desire. And it turns out a large proportion of people, women in particular, but men too, um, and of course we have no data about trans folks because there's almost no research, no sex research on trans folks. It's unfortunate. I think it's going to change in the next 10 years. But in the meantime, I mostly can only talk about what uh, cisgender men and women experience. Um, It turns out there's a large portion of people who rarely or never experienced spontaneous desire, but very reliably experienced responsive desire. And it's not the, so this is the, uh, people sometimes think they're broken if they're not experiencing uh, responsive, or they're not experiencing spontaneous desire, because the cultural narrative is very much that it's supposed to be out of the blue, hot and horny, hungry, can't wait to stuff your tongue down your partner's throat. Um, And it's just not the case. That's fun when it happens, and we can talk about ways to create context that facilitate that kind of desire. But it's also normal, as a friend of mine was just saying, you know what, sometimes you just toss the last of the toys in the toy box, you trudge up the stairs, you lie down in bed next to this person, and you let your skin touch theirs and remember, oh, right, I really like this person, and I really like this relationship, and I really like these sensations, and I like sex, and that's normal 
Um, my favorite analogy, actually, it comes from a sex therapist named Christina Hyde in New Jersey, and she talks to her clients with this analogy that if your, uh, you know, if your best friend invites you to a party, you say yes, because it's your best friend, and it's a party. Great. Um, but as the date approaches, you start thinking like, oh, there's going to be all this traffic, and we have to find childcare, and I have to put on pants on a Friday, and I just don't know if I can do it. But you go to the party because you said you were going to go and it's your best friend. And what happens? Most of the time, you end up having a really good time at the party. If you are having fun at the party, you are doing it right. That is actually normal, healthy desire is when you can experience pleasure in the moment. And there's no amount of longing or craving parties that can make the parties worth going to. And it turns out the best measure of a person's overall sexual well-being is not the intensity of their craving or their longing, but whether or not they enjoy the sex they are having. My shorthand for this is my little three-word rhyming phrase that you can take home with you is, pleasure is the measure. Pleasure is the measure of sexual well-being. If you are enjoying the sex you are having, then you are doing it right. So that's about uh, what responsive desire is like. Context-sensitive, and this is most people, most people in life will experience spontaneous desire at some point in their life and responsive desire at other points in their life and will probably have windows when they have neither. And that's normal because it turns out the way our brains respond to sexually relevant information is really strongly dependent on the context. And that is sort of the balance of breaks and gas that are happening for you at any given time. So, for example, my my go-to example here is uh, tickling. You know how uh, if you're in, I know tickling is not everybody's favorite, but if you're in a fun, flirty, sexy, playful kind of state of mind and you're certain special someone tickles you, at least hypothetically you can imagine situations where that feels pleasurable and fun and potentially leads to other things. But if that exact same certain special someone tickles you while you are pissed off at them, you want to punch them in the face. It's the same sensation, but because the context, your state of mind is different, this it entirely last... changes the way your brain perceives that sensation. Sorry? Oh, no. Said, that was and, making noise. Sorry no, about that. that's fine. Uh, no, I, I was saying last week we were talking about consensual sex and, uh, you know, it, it, when, I, when I'm feeling in a really good place and someone comes up behind me and touches me or tickles me, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, like I think you had used some analogies in your book around stress. If I'm really, really stressed out, you know, get your hands off of me. But when I'm feeling, like you said, in that kind of warm, fuzzy space and feeling quite comfortable and someone comes up and does this, you know, it's it's oh, this is fun, this is exciting. And so it's, you know, we, we do tend to, whatever is going on in that uh, mind of ours, uh, we we tend to respond to that. So this idea of context is, is I think, really a critical piece. And that your phrase, context-dependent, has, you know, I, to me, had some real value. 
for, uh, for me, it has totally changed the way I teach about consent, actually, because I, the, the standard language for talking about consent is say yes and no, depending on what you want. And I think it matters a lot more and is actually more helpful when people say yes to the things they like, the things that they enjoy. Because in your example, you know, you're in a flirty, sexy, great state of mind and your partner comes up behind you. That feels awesome. So you say yes because it brings you pleasure. And your partner does exactly the same thing when you're already feeling frustrated and worn out. You say no, not because of what they're doing, but because it doesn't feel good. It's not bringing you pleasure. So that's why context is so important. If you want to create a strong sexual connection in a relationship, it's not about touch me this way, don't touch me there. It's about what's the context I can create that will allow my brain to interpret these sensations as ones that are pleasurable. And one of the things that's really central is actually believing that your sexuality is healthy and normal. Because if you have a different kind of sexual desire experience than you've been led to expect you should have, if you've been taught that spontaneous desire is the only normal, healthy way to experience desire, and that's not how desire is working for you these days, you start to feel broken. And so you go out and you look for ways to fix that. But feeling broken and criticizing yourself and worrying about your sexuality, is, is that hitting the accelerator? It's absolutely just hitting the brake. So if you can let go of the judgment and the shame and the worry that because your sexuality isn't what you were taught it was supposed to be, that actually opens up the door to try out different ways of experiencing sexual pleasure and sexual desire that don't necessarily line up with what you were taught they should be. Um, and one of the things I say in the book over and over is I teach people to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies, confidence and joy. Um, <laughs> and then a student <laughs> asked me, Emily, can you define those terms for me, please? What do you mean by confidence and joy? And I had no idea. Um, so I thought about it. I was actually vacuuming my living room rug, thinking, like, what do I mean by confidence and joy? And it turns out, when I say those things, what I really mean by confidence is knowing what's true about your body and sexuality. So that includes knowing that you have both an accelerator and a brake, knowing that desire can be spontaneous or responsive, and most people experience both in their life. Confidence is knowing what's true. Joy is the hard part. Because joy is about loving what's true, even when it's not what you were told to expect your sexuality would be or what your body would be. Um, and we often struggle with that because we have a whole lot of cultural norms that we've absorbed, all these scripts about how sex is supposed to work in our relationships and how it's supposed to be. And it turns out almost all of those cultural scripts, almost everything we learn about sex from mainstream sources is fundamentally incorrect, not to mention very limited to like this narrow band of ways that, experience, that people experience healthy sexuality. So the hard part is the really welcoming your sexuality as it is, knowing that it's going to change from day to day and from year to year and from relationship to relationship. Well, and I think, you know, again, the the title of the show is The Sexual Voice, and this past 13 weeks have been exploring just what you're saying, is what is my sexual voice, and can how can I gain confidence in believing that this is who I am, and and recognizing as we've kind of gone over the span of the, you know, the show, 
the various episodes is looking at, number one, it changes across the lifespan. So who I am today may not be who I am tomorrow, but understanding that my voice and having the confidence to express it is is really fundamental to me feeling fulfilled, to me feeling even, you know, directing me toward what you, you know, calling joy, uh, that it that it is something that you can't feel unless you can feel strong within yourself. And you're engaging in your sexual experiences for, and I hate to use this phrase, but the right reason for you. Um, that sometimes, you know, which does come up sometimes, people have sex for what they think the other person wants or the other mm-hmm. one will love me if, you know, if we have sex. But, and those are really the, I think, the paths that get people muddled or confused and, and sometimes lost in, in being able to really have a strong sense of desire. The, oh. We mentioned the monitor. Uh, could we touch on that? I can't hear you. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, I can't lose you, Emily. Can you hear me? Why don't we go for a break, Michael, and uh, we'll come right back, and hopefully we can reconnect with Emily and go on with Joe Court. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you experiencing a sexual concern or issue that you would like to discuss? Jessica Ford is available for a brief consultation to help. For a nominal fee charged to your credit card, you can experience a 30-minute one-on-one confidential phone consultation with Jessica on your sexual situation or challenges you are experiencing. To schedule your personal consult with Jessica, email thesexualvoice at jafordgroup.com or contact her through her website, jafordgroup.com. Remember to provide your contact information. Jessica is here to help you. Are you available to travel to Jessica's office between Milwaukee and Chicago? When the need arises, some issues or situations require more than a brief consultation. Consider an office visit with Jessica and schedule a one-time intensive therapy session of two hours or a half or full day. Follow-up sessions can be discussed and arranged. To find out more and book an appointment, visit jafordgroup.com or call 262-726-4722. Credit card payments accepted at time of service. Out-of-network insurance reimbursement is possible, but not guaranteed. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to The Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to The Sexual Voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to The Sexual Voice. 
Welcome back, and we're quite fortunate that uh, we were able to reconnect with Emily so we could uh, at least conclude uh, her segment of today's episode. So we were talking about spontaneous and responsive desire and context-dependent but you had also referenced, uh, I thought was a interesting, uh, the monitor kind of part in, in your chapter seven of your book. And there's so much in your book that uh, uh, everyone, I, I'm urging everyone to, to buy and, and read because it's so valuable. But the, the, this monitor, could you maybe explain some more? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite pieces of science in the book. And to my knowledge, nobody else is writing about it. So I'm so excited that you asked me. Hooray. Okay. Yay. So uh, <laughs> there's uh, what the research is saying. This model is that there's uh, a little monitor. There's not, it's not a literal monitor. This is a metaphor. If you want to look at the research, it is the discrepancy reducing feedback loop and criterion velocity, which is why I call it the little monitor because everyone falls asleep instantly when you say that. So sure. the monitor knows, it knows what your goal is. It knows uh, how much effort you're investing toward the goal, and it keeps track of how much progress you're making, right? So there's this, it's keeping a ratio of effort to progress, and it has a very specific expectation about what that ratio is supposed to be. So the simple example is if you're driving to the mall, you expect it to take, I don't know, 20 minutes to get to the mall. If there's really light traffic and you're getting all the green lights, you're moving really swiftly. And so you feel very good. You feel like I'm the queen of the universe. Um, But if there's heavy traffic or you're getting all the red lights, you start to get frustrated because you're not making enough progress towards your goal for the amount of resource that you're investing in it. Um, And so you start to get frustrated and sometimes that's motivating and causes you to work a little harder. But if you continue to invest effort and you still don't get where you want to go, that escalates into rage. And at a certain point, you're a little, and we've all been there in the car gripping the steering wheel, like, why can't I get this to work? That will, at a certain point, your little monitor switches its assessment of your goal from being attainable to being unattainable, and it pushes you off an emotional cliff into the pit of despair. So in the driving to the mall example, this is like the whole highway is shut down, you're sitting in your car for two hours, not going anywhere, and I don't think I'm the only person who has literally like broke down sobbing in the car, I'm never going to get home. You know that feeling? I Yes, I do. <laughs> Usually... <laughs> When I need to be somewhere. <laughs> yeah, this, right. So that's a really important factor is the uh, amount that the goal matters to you changes the dynamics. If it really, if you're just on your way to the mall, it doesn't matter that much. But if you're trying to get home because you've got a kid who's sick or something like that, it really matters a lot that you get there. Um, and so that escalation goes up really fast. When so you you're equating this to, monitor to sex then, right? Yeah. To, you, you know, someone. monitor to sexual desire. If, so it's tricky because on the one hand, this is how sexual desire itself works, um, that there is some enticing sexual something or other out there that you want to get a hold of. And we go through all kinds of things. We follow our sexual scripts and we flirt with people and we say, hey, honey, do you want to? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So if one partner in a relationship is pursuing sex, really has the explicit goal, has spontaneous desire and keeps asking 
what happens is it turns into the chasing dynamic where the partner on the receiving end of these requests doesn't feel excited about sex, and so they say no, but they feel bad about saying no, and they also feel frustrated for being asked over and over again. So their likelihood of saying yes actually goes down, and uh, the person who's asking gets more and more frustrated until eventually they shut down, and that drives everybody into a ditch, ultimately. And the solution is to change the goal. The goal being not to have sex anymore, but to experience pleasure together in some way that removes all of the performance demand and just allows people to enjoy whatever sensations they can share with each other that actually do feel good and satisfying for everybody involved. That's an excellent explanation. I, and again, I urge everyone to buy the book and to read all of the book, especially chapter seven, um, because there's so much you can obtain. And I hope that you can stay on with us while I introduce uh, Joe Court, who has been patiently waiting and uh, would like to say that Joe is a psychotherapist. Like myself, he's a coach and author in private practice since 1985. His practice specializes in sex therapy and sexual identity issues, including out-of-control sexual behavior, responsible non-monogamy, monogamy, childhood sexual, physical, and emotional abuse, mixed orientation marriages, coming out, and depression and anxiety. Joe graduated from Michigan State University with dual majors in psychology and social work and at Wayne State University he earned a master's in social work and then a master's in psychology. He received his doctorate in clinical sexology from the American Academy of Clinical Sexologists. If you'd like to learn more about Joe and what he does, go and check out his website, www.joecourt, J-O. E-K-O-R-T dot com. Welcome, Joe. Thank you for being patient. And uh, I, I hope you've heard uh, the brilliance of Emily and what she shared. Oh, my God, I did. And I, it was awesome. I learned a lot listening to her. I have her book. I just haven't even read it yet. Now I'm in, very more, more inspired. You should be. You should be. It is inspiring. And uh, I, I'm, I'm passing it out, actually. I think I'm buying in bulk. Um, <laughs> Joe... When a man loses desire, it seems there is an assumption he's gay. And, 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 and I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. Um, the couple come in and, uh, the, you know, in a, and I usually do individual sessions with my couples. Um, I kind of do the couples therapy and then some individuals and then bring them back together. The woman always says to me, do you really think he's gay? And uh, please, you know, I, I'm going to ask you to, you know, I'm not putting you out there as, uh, well, you are the expert as far as I'm concerned, why this is usually not the case. And uh, what are the other possible factors? And we know there's many, I mean, uh, as I kind of began with, uh, can you give some examples, uh, you know, as well? But uh, for the most part, uh, what are... Can you explain why this is not the case, or can you can you put it in a phrase, maybe, or, or terms that uh, our listeners can understand? 
Well, yeah, so I hear it a lot, too, in my office. And, you know, it's the first thing is um, because, you know, people, when they're, they're watching people come out more and more, it looks like they were straight at one time and then turned gay or, you know, pretending to themselves. And, pre- and they, they, they have been, and they are. So it's frightening when there's some sexual problem or lack of desire or um, this, you know, this growing disinterest. Really, when, when these women ask that, what they're really asking is, what I experience is, um, is he going to leave me? Is this so, is it, am I going to be abandoned in this relationship? Um, mm. Because she already feels abandoned by his disinterest or his lower desire. And um, so, you know, I always joke with people, too, that even though I, I do a lot of work with helping people discover their sexual orientation, I'm not a gay whisperer, you know. If I was, I'd, have, <laughs> I'd be rich and I'd be living next to Oprah, you know, because I could help each woman. A lot of women have this concern. And um, so it, it, it's not... And here's one thing I always like to tell people. When somebody is gay and they're in a heterosexual marriage, especially if they're 40 and younger, they're still having really good sex with their spouses. They love their spouses. And, and the older, over 40, maybe even over 35, they're, they're having trouble having sex. So they move away and become disinterested. But we're not seeing that in the younger generation. So that, that, that kind of lack of desire that, that occurs, isn't, uh, even if he is gay, wouldn't, um, wouldn't mean that. Um, well, that wasn't well said at the end, but you know what I'm saying, that if he, usually he, that's not an indicator. What it does indicate is that on the guy's end, he may have so many different issues. It may be more of a struggle for him to, um, you know, create sexuality with his wife or girlfriend that, you know, keeping it going, knowing how to make it work. Um, you know, I love what the, the difference that was described by Emily, the responsive versus the spontaneous and it becomes less spontaneous, obviously, the longer we're in relationship. But our culture doesn't teach anything about that. So in the beginning, I loved your write-up. You know, in the beginning of all relationships, we're all willing to, we, our sex drives match. We're willing to do whatever we need to do uh, for our partner because we want to do it. It's just automatic and it's innate. And it's nature's way of just bonding us with this other person. It, it all goes away. And over time, if you don't continuously have conversations, sexual conversations, you know, novelty, then you're going to start having a lower desire. And for men, they often don't know how to use that vocabulary and talk about what they want. And so they end up moving inward, moving inward toward themselves. And it's easier for them to masturbate. It's easier for them to look at porn than it, because porn and masturbation doesn't talk back. It doesn't judge you. It doesn't, you don't have to negotiate anything. And so they move in toward themselves, not because of porn or masturbation, but because of the lack of skill of being able to turn to their wives and girlfriends and say, I'm, 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 following, I'm finding myself having lower desire, plus the shame of being a man and having that lower desire. Um, that's really hard on a guy to admit to and then talk about. No, I, I've seen um, years ago when I was going through some training uh, to be a sex therapist, uh, I had the opportunity to hear a man talk about, um, and it was actually one of the most eye-opening experiences in terms of listening to him describe how little men know about sex. And that's why I kind of was talking in the beginning about stereotypes, that there is this expectation that all men are spontaneous and all men know everything about sex and all men really want sex and they're the driving force. And that's why, in, in Emily, in your book, you, you, you kind 
kind of talk about that isn't always the case, right? And uh, and and that you know, in in this perfect world, that if we could move past our cultural narratives, that we could find that we're far more equal and balanced, uh, men and women. Uh, you know, if we could just move into a more sexual positive discussion. Um, I think, you know, what I hear many times is men talk about being turned off by the fact that woman's aging, which I find also unfortunate, but, uh, and also she's overweight and, you know, they just can't get past you know, again, one of our sensory perceptions of visual and or touch, that this seems to really kind of keep them from developing that desire. It's really true of all men in, in that you see that also in the gay community where there's, you know, a youth-oriented focus and, um, you know, discrimination against the age aging process. Men are so, um, they're, for whatever reason, they're, loyalty is to the visual and again it's the same thing they don't know how to find other ways of being sexual and talking about it um you know i always say you know this is what we do to males when we raise them we stop touching little boys around the age of eight we start teaching them not to touch anyone other other little boys we start to tell them to reject the emotional vocabulary to their their inner life and so they have no access to their feelings other than through sex sexual language, through violence, through, you know, work, through sports, but they don't, know how to, they don't know how to express themselves through attachment language, so they do want to talk to their spouse about different, maybe role play, different positions, different, um, if they have even the awareness they want this, but even if they do, they don't know how to say it without feeling ashamed and without, um, sometimes I notice with couples, straight couples especially, the women get turned off by what the, how the guy presents the sexual interest, what he wants, how he wants it, and the guy just doesn't have a good vocabulary for it. And then her, dis, her um, turn-off becomes almost disgust sometimes. So then he feels shamed, and she feels, you know, violated in some way, and then the conversation just ends for both of them. So then he moves away from her. And my, our job as therapists, what I do in the room, is help him have a better vocabulary, but also help her hear him in a different way. And that takes uh, certainly a encouragement to uh, to be curious with one another and to take that risk to be vulnerable. They have to really work at, you know, again, these are phrases, but to be brave with one another because this is, uh, it's a struggle. And when I mention the word vulnerability uh, with the couples in, in my clinical room, they're... Uh, they sometimes, you know, the woman is receptive sometimes and sometimes not, but more times than not, it's the man who pauses vulnerability, you know, and uh, you move forward. Um, there was a case that I had not too long ago that kind of fits this. Uh, a, a client came to me terribly distraught um, over the situation that she had uh, uh, thought she would come home and surprise her her partner uh, to have a little morning fun, and she was all pumped and ready in many ways, and uh, arrived home, and he wasn't visibly in the house, and she decided to go into the bathroom, open the bathroom door, and found him in the tub with a dildo. Unfortunately, it was her dildo, so that was part of the distress, but uh, using a dildo uh, for anal sex and while watching uh, gay porn. 
her distress was shock, obviously, about what she saw, even though she knows that at times he likes uh, anal play. And then her concern was, obviously, he must be gay and that he's going to, as you had said so so perfectly, Joe, he, he was going to leave her. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is a total fear of abandonment. And then once they get past the fact, I know this, that what you've said when li- listeners are probably listen, listening thinking, well, of course that's gay. You know, people always think about even anal sex being gay. And I always say, you know, your anus doesn't have a sexual orientation. It's not gay. It's not straight. It's not bisexual. It's just uh, <laughs> uh, it's, you, it experiences pleasure or not. So many gay men never have anal sex because they don't experience uh, pleasure there. And that doesn't make it them any less gay. And even just watching the gay porn can be very confusing, although there was a recent study that's just come out and it's great. They found that 22% of straight men do watch gay porn, and it has nothing to do with their identity. But what you said, even the idea of um, his being focused on her age, it could be a guy focused on a man, you know, a gay guy, a guy's age or weight, it really is because men, they focus on that, but they don't really understand that it's because they don't know other ways to be sexual. And that takes what you said, vulnerability and, and changing the focus. It's like when men start to lose their ability to have erections. That's all men have learned to do is that's how you have sex. You have intercourse. And if it's not intercourse, then, and you can't use your penis in that way, you can't have sex. And we have to teach older men or men who have erectile disorder um, how to have other kinds of sex. And sometimes it feels very feminine to them or that they're being feminized or that their sexuality is being challenged. And that's what's hard. You had mentioned masturbation. And this is another example of a man and a client. uh, The couple had come uh, struggling with sexual issues. And one of the things that she described was uh, she just couldn't understand his joy of masturbation and that they had been on their honeymoon and having great sex. And then uh, he had gotten up to go take a shower and she wanders into the bathroom and found him masturbating. This was perplexing. And he couldn't even, as you said, he didn't have the vocabulary to even explain to her why he masturbates. But this masturbation topic comes up a lot because it's almost like an infidelity. Uh, you know, it's, it's, he's choosing his, himself over her or, uh, you know, that it's, there's something wrong with her or he's not satisfied enough. So very quickly, can you touch on that, Joe? Yeah, again, you know, masturbation is just easier, and again, you don't have to negotiate it with anybody, and it's really apples and oranges. Having sex with his wife and masturbating is what most men do. The problem is, when she sees the masturbating, or sometimes if the lower desire happens, she thinks, well, he prefers that over me, and it really isn't that. It's that he has... It may be, you know, but mostly it's not that. Mostly it's he's lost his ability to be able to talk with her about um, maintaining a sexual connection with her. And masturbation is just uh, a way, it's, it's the symptom of the problem. It's not the problem. That's what I always say. This, the real problem is inability to have sexual conversation. Perfect. So we're going to take another break and we're going to come back. So I'm going to ask you to please uh, take a few minutes when we come back each and uh, provide the listeners with some, just, some suggestions on how to take their foot off the brake and throttle up. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you available to travel to Jessica's office between Milwaukee and Chicago? When the need arises, some issues or situations require more than a brief consultation. Consider an office visit with Jessica and schedule a one-time intensive therapy session of two hours or a half or full day. Follow-up sessions can be discussed and arranged. To find out more and book an appointment, visit jafordgroup.com or call 262-726-4722. Credit card payments accepted at time of service. Out-of-network insurance reimbursement is possible but not guaranteed. Are you experiencing a sexual concern or issue that you would like to discuss? Jessica Ford is available for a brief consultation to help. For a nominal fee charged to your credit card, you can experience a 30-minute one-on-one confidential phone consultation with Jessica on your sexual situation or challenges you are experiencing. To schedule your personal consult with Jessica, email thesexualvoice at jafordgroup.com or contact her through her website, jafordgroup.com. Remember to provide your contact information. Jessica is here to help you. You are listening to The Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to The Sexual Voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to The Sexual Voice. Welcome back. And okay, boys and girls, how do we throttle up? I was actually just looking, this is Emily, I was looking at some research just recently, it came out, uh, I think, just a couple of months ago. Um, My friend, Robin Milhausen, who's a sex researcher, she calls it the six-minute rule, and it's not actually about what you do during sex. It turns out a really strong predictor of a couple's sexual satisfaction has nothing to do with the sex they have, how often they have it, but with how much time they spend cuddling together after sex. Mm. And she has decided the threshold is six minutes. You spend six minutes snuggling with each other, staying physically close and emotionally connected after sex, and that's actually one of the best ways to increase the pleasure people experience with their sexuality. And I understand you're going to be seeing Robin. Uh, I was a member of BESCO before I left Canada, and you're going to be at BESCO, which is the Board of Examiners of Sex Therapists of Ontario, uh, next Friday. So please, uh, if you can remember to say hello to all of them for me. Thank you. I absolutely will. And I saw that research, and uh, yeah, it it really you know talks to the oxytocin that gets developed after sex. That if we if we just break apart, there's nothing. And I'm going to ask you to please check out Emily again on her website www.emilynagowski.com and uh, also please order and buy her groundbreaking book from Amazon. And Joe, what? How are we going to throttle up with you? 
I think the most important thing I've learned as a sex therapist is that couples have to have two conversations, their emotional connection, their emotional conversation and with each other, and the sexual conversation. We used to believe that if the relationship got better, then sex would get better. That's not necessarily true. It's mostly not true. If sex gets better, then the relationship gets better. That's mostly not true. Both have their own lives. They're both well, their own entities. And so, really, it's what you said so difficult, so complicated, and so much messier is to have real conversations around sex, about your bodies, about, you know, what interests you, what doesn't interest you, and most couples don't do that because it involves so much hurt, but it, it has to be done in a, very, in, in a very empathic and compassionate way. You are fantastic, and uh, I hope to see you both at some future conference or somewhere along the paths that we travel uh, Joe, thank you so much. Emily, thank you so much. And for Joe's wonderful work, please check out his website at www.joecourt.com. And again, thank you so much for, for being with me today on this finale. And you really have made it a great finale. So looking ahead, I'm going to say what a journey this pilot series has been. As I began, I want thanking everyone. I want to thank everyone now on the Voice of America team for all the support, patience, and kindness shown to me over the last four months, especially my executive producer, Fiona King. You are one special lady, and I'm so appreciative of all you have done for me and on my behalf. My heartfelt thanks goes out to all my exceptional guests, including the ones that are still on the line. A personal thank you is coming your way. I'm also thanking my dear friend, why am I becoming tearful, and colleague Leah Valian for her creative thoughts and loving support. A special thanks to my friends and family for their loving contributions. And finally, thank you all, all of you, on an average I have 500 listeners per week, for listening. Those of you across the U.S., Canada, the U.K., France, Germany, and so many other countries. Your positive feedback and suggestions are appreciated and well-heeded. The learning curve has been steep, and I know when the show hopefully continues in early winter, I will need to keep learning and improving my role as a talk show host. I am pleased to say work is underway to take the show to a second season. One thing I can promise is to continue having the best and the highest caliber of guests like the two I've had today on each episode, to continue exploring sex as a human need and support connection with your sexual voice. The live episodes end for now, but all of the episodes are available on demand. So please keep listening, exploring, and learning. You can reach out to me anytime at thesexualvoice.com. Don't forget, sexual health begins with you. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining Jessica and her guests today on The Sexual Voice. Please tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy your sexual self, and please join us here next Friday.